Alright guys, coming back at you, still with the same crew over here. Um, a couple more short articles that we read, so again, you don't have to. Or you should, you know, for completeness sake. Uh, but Mike is going to hit us with some treats. Yeah, I have a real treat for everybody here. This joke's going to be overkilled throughout this podcast. But, you know, right now, the obesity pandemic and the pumpkin spice latte pandemic coming on <laughs> really made me want to read this article. So this is the treat trial. Uh, essentially, it's effects of time-restricted eating on weight loss and other metabolic parameters in women and men with overweight and obesity. So essentially what this is looking at is, is intermittent fasting worth it? Should you be fasting for these long hours, then subjecting yourself to these limited windows of eating? So they did the pleasure of doing this for us and telling us the actual answer. Does this help with weight loss or not? So this was a randomized trial. It involved about 141 participants. Most of them, their average BMI was about 31. And they uh, broke them into two groups. You have your controlled, which was eat whenever you want and whatever you want. And then the other other population. Tom in that arm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think most exactly. of us are. <laughs> and then the other population was you can eat whatever you want, but in this specific window, uh, their actual window that they did was uh, they can eat between 12 and 8 p.m. And then the rest of the time they're supposed to be either fasting or drinking only water or black coffee. That's what they're their rules were. Yeah. Pretty strict. Yeah. Luckily, these uh, participants also got provided a free scale. Uh, they got a free scale to weigh themselves every day, as well Makes as a free, a free food scale as well. Mm -hmm. But they were not required to track their calories or monitor their calories just if they wanted to. So the main okay. outcome of this was actually looking at weight loss, but they also looked at secondary outcomes, which was um, weight change, fat mass, lean mass, fasting insulin, A1C levels, energy intake, mm -hmm. total energy, a bunch of other things kind of associated with weight loss. Like the C kind of, how do you feel on this diet compared to the other? Sure, That's kind of sure. how I, I look at it. Was there some like subjectivity to it? Like energy and like yeah, questionnaire? The, yeah, it's more like questionnaire based. They did some where they measured the A1C obviously and looked at certain okay. lab values. But And they also had in-person metabolic measurements and training where if you live in California, you can go to a specific center and they do all this metabolic training for you. Metabolic measurements, yeah. Okay. So um, it was a relatively short trial. It was about 12, 12 weeks in duration. Um, and kind of this summarizing it, they found no difference between the two groups. Between the 116 participants, there was no significant decrease in weight between the two groups, no significant change in energy expenditure or uh, lean body mass or A1C lipid profile, there was no very minimal or marginal difference between the two groups, which I think is relatively good because it, it makes it so that people can eat whenever they want and mm -hmm. kind of do what they want and not feel like they're missing out from intermittent fasting. Yeah, because that's all the rage right now. Exactly. It's all the rage. Everybody's saying you got intermittent fast, intermittent fast, intermittent fast. This is my window. This is what I'm eating. And it can cause a lot of strain. And then another thing that they found in the study is actually that the intermittent fasting was really hard for adherence. There's a greater adherence to the program when you can eat whenever you want yeah. compared to when you're restricted, which in my mind, that makes sense. Right. I mean, you know, for me, I prefer to eat what I want when I want rather than in a specific window. And then um, kind of like pros and cons for this study. It's a pretty simple study, so there's not really too much detail to go into. But some pros and cons is um, they allowed people to eat what they want, which is not the best way to lose weight if you are an obese person. So it would be interesting to do a further trial where they compared these two on a weight loss calorie on a calorie-restricted diet, right? diet. They weren't looking at exercise habits. They weren't looking at lifestyle habits. They weren't looking at any of that. They were just comparing, 
do you lose weight or not just off of this? So, so it's an interesting study because it sounds like calorie-wise and what you're taking is completely even between the two. So they were just looking at the effect of the fasting alone, exactly. removing the variable of like exactly. the actual carb-free, fat-free, whatever. Yeah, because exactly. it'd be so. interesting to see. Do you just cram all those calories into a shorter period if you're restricted? Oh, um, I could easily do that. spreading oh, yeah, it out. No <laughs> easily. One meal. One big meal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this was overall a pretty good trial. I think it does need some some you know tweaks to it i'm sure there's going to be plenty of studies on this coming out in the future but i thought it was very interesting for yeah. my reading i guess the, the, my only other thoughts is that it's a pretty short study yeah you know 12 weeks is not i mean not like a really long longitudinal study and the other issue you have with any diet trial compared to like a medical trial and i'm not being funny here you can't double blind it right yeah like the person knows what they're eating yeah exactly and that like kind of exactly. ruins the whole placebo effect of your randomized control trial so it is kind of a difficult uh, study to organize in general, um, but some food for thought. Yeah, this was a real treat to read. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just quickly, because I know you know some of our listeners may be curious, how much weight did they actually lose? So for those in the controlled group, their pre-weight in kilograms was about 93. Post-weight after 12 weeks was 92.4. So they only lost about like 0.6 kilograms, like so absolutely nothing. Yeah. And then those in the fasting group went from 92.6 to 90.9 .9. so kind of like 1.7 kilograms even then it's not you know if you're doing true weight loss you should be losing about one to two pounds a week that's your goal so they weren't even near that so overall good study but i think it needs uh some tweaks in the future one thing that they didn't discuss how many people got hangry yes in yes in the past <laughs> exactly so that, that's a real exactly that need to be another box like on the chart here yeah. <laughs> random feelings of rage throughout the day. <laughs> All right, so that's a quick word about intermittent fasting. So I'm glad I don't have to sign myself for that now. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, whenever you counsel your patient, I will say, even if there's no evidence, if it's not found to be harmful, if that's something that works for your patient and they want to stick to it, if they're feeling well and they're not getting dizzy or whatever, I would still support them as long as they're exercising and watching what they eat. They wanted to do that, and I, I don't see any harms from there. Oh. Then I would still support them. Hundred percent, no harm, no harm at all. Yeah. So do what you want. So, the next trial I wanted to go over. Um, this was from 2019. Uh, we've had a couple patients where this comes up a lot. So th this trial is called the Poet Trial, um, and that's basically looking at uh, uh, PO antibiotics for endocarditis. And this comes up a lot on my service, and in, I'm sure you guys have come across this problem a lot where a patient is stuck in what I call pick jail for six weeks to complete antibiotics um, because of like IV drug history or insurance or whatever situation might come up and you know we can't send them home. So I thought this was an interesting trial. You know, a lot of studies nowadays in infectious disease are looking at using PO instead of IV in general. We've previously on this podcast covered the Oviva which was looking at joint infections and uh, osteomyelitis with PO and found no difference there. Uh, and in general, we're getting shorter in our duration and learning that maybe PO is just as good as IV. So what this trial did, this was a randomized control trial and it was set up as a non-inferiority trial. So they're not trying to show that PO is better, mm -hmm. they're just trying to show that if it's not any worse, why not use it occasionally? Mm -hmm. So what they did was they took 400 patients and this was all done in uh, Denmark, so not American patients, you know, maybe the patient population is a little different, but uh, they took 400 patients, all of the patients had to have left-sided endocarditis, so no tricuspid, 
and it was all the it was the pretty much like the common bugs. So staph, strep, enterococcus, and coag negative staph. And I should just start now by saying it was not MRSA. It was all patients with MSSA that we know we can treat without vancomycin, right? So it's. But I, I thought it was interesting that they didn't screen that out. It's just somehow none of these patients wound up having. MRSA. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So I don't know. That kind of maybe speaks to a different patient yes. population a little bit. But. It, true. Uh, so that that is, I'll get to that in our discussion, maybe one of the nuances to this trial. But basically, they put 200 patients in each group. Everyone, regardless, got 10 days of IV to start, and then they got randomized after they finished 10 days of initial IV treatment, and they were transitioned to PO, or they were set home to finish their IV. And their outcomes that they looked at was any of the following, either death, need for surgery, embolization, or persistent bacteremia. So it wasn't just death, they looked at multiple kind of complications of endocarditis. And as you can guess, long story short, there is no significant difference between the groups. So whether you went to PO or I, or finished the IV, there was no change in the rate of death, surgery, or like, you know, septic emboli to uh, whatever location. Um, so a couple of things with this study before we, you know, start to send our patients home with PO. Um, the re you know, just keep in mind, uh, you know, not that we're going to necessarily apply this to our patients right now, but remember inclusion criteria. So if you ever did want to apply this to a patient, remember they still got 10 days. So all these patients mm -hmm. still got upfront IV and the rationale for that is because if you're going to have like a major complication, it's going to happen earlier in your course and you want to catch it and monitor those patients inpatient. Um, they excluded also patients who had like early valve surgery, patients with perivalvular abscess and all those kind of complications, heart blocks, et cetera. So we're not taking really sick patients here either. We're taking patients who are like stable, uncomplicated, who are finishing their initial course. Um, then the other thing to consider that uh, I thought was a little interesting, and I kind of thought maybe they were kind of like hedging their bets a little bit, is that the PO group went on two antibiotics. In the event that there was like uh, decreased absorption of one, uh, and they used antibiotics in different groups to provide some synergy, like a bacteriostatic with a bacteriocidal drug, um, they did kind of check drug levels of a lot of patients. And for the most part, there were a handful of patients that had like decreased levels of one, but not the other, and it didn't really affect their outcome. So I did think it was kind of interesting that they, that's not what how I would necessarily treat a patient with two you know, PO antibiotics to cover the same thing, but that's what they did in this trial. Um, maybe it's just patient population, like you mentioned, no MRSA, but they also didn't include any IV drug users there. I think there were like five in the whole yeah, trial. I think it wound up being like 1% of the, right. the population. Yeah. yeah. Which is a major population that yeah. needs to stay in for six weeks. Exactly. So that's a major question we still have to answer. Exactly. Uh, and the last thing that they mentioned is that maybe there's like a referral bias. You know, you're trying to, you're selecting out younger, healthier. Mm -hmm. You're not selecting out like our 90 year old with yeah. major vegetation. We're picking people who we think can tolerate this. So, yeah. you know, I'm again, I'm not like ready to send home all of my endocarditis patients, but I think it's interesting that there is some early, you know, early data kind of bubbling here about maybe we don't have to treat every single infection with IV. And like at some point it will come up that a patient, you know, either can't get a pick or can't go home or there's some insurance issue or something. Maybe this is something we should consider. So 
I don't want you to, you know, bring this up on rounds on ID as your plan, but it's interesting, you know, kind of food for thought, something to, to stew on a little bit. Yeah, and I think that outpatient follow-up is important. And these people, if you're going to send them on PO, for example, in this trial, they saw the outpatient doctor like two to three times a week, mm -hmm. which is a lot. And some of these patients who are sending home on PO antibiotics maybe wouldn't have the best follow-up. So I think that's also something to keep in mind. Yeah, and even like the dosing intervals of these antibiotics, you know, some of them, if you're doing like cephazolin or something like that, you know, you're taking oral medications four times a day. You know, it's not fun. I mean, I, I even I wouldn't be able to follow through with that. I'm a young male, and, you know, the older you get, the less likely to be compliant, or, you know, you're in the workforce, you don't have time to step away, take your meds, and right. either take these with food, you get the side effect profile of oral antibiotics, GI upset, diarrhea, that's probably with adherence, they're not going to want to take it, and they can, you know, so there's a lot of... Yeah, I think you'd have to really trust these patients to yeah. be compliant. Yeah. 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 And it, it's, a, it's a bold experiment, too, because, like, it's not like they had a little, like, skin abscess or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like heart this infection. Is, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. right? If you yeah. mess up the treatment, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, I, I actually talked with my, like, 15 weeks of ID I've done already, but I've talked to my attendings about this and kind of, like, how they feel and what their stance is, and they, they feel like they need more literature to mm -hmm. support their decision for oral because the risks of it outweigh the benefits of doing oral compared to right, IV sure. right now, so they need more data to support it. Yeah, I don't think I've successfully sent, been able to send somebody home on PO antibiotics for endocarditis or joint or bone yeah, infections yeah. yet. So. I've tried with joints, but no success <laughs> I, yet. I have to. You know, I've thought about it. I would love for them to do this on an IV drug user population, just to see kind of what the adherence is to the actual oral medications, because... I really do not like walking into a room and say you're going to be here for six weeks. Yeah. That's the I worst. Pick prison. Yeah, it's it's horrible. I mean, mm -hmm. I really wish they did a study just on IV drug users, which would be hard, I imagine, just to get that yeah, patient population that would be, alone. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope you learned something interesting today. Good.